Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. Okay, um, before lunch we had uh, just gotten to the position of, as I, at least as I understood the, the question and the comment, um, and, and maybe this will actually turn out to be a somewhat uh, a reorient, reorienting of the question and comment, but we had spent our time talking about why the South seceded, what lay behind that, why they seceded when they did, uh, and then the, the comment came up that uh, we were talking about an issue uh, that was associated with secession, uh, not necessarily cause. And I'm going to interpret that as uh, being similar to my point about the distinction between the roots of secession, the reasons for, se- for secession, the reasons why seven states seceded in December and January of 1861. Actually, I guess in Texas's case, it was February 1st. Um, and why the, the war came. Because one can conceive of a situation where seven states or any number of states secede, but it does not lead to war. There are some alternative <coughs> scenarios that one can imagine. And uh, I think in the course of our discussion, we can... Uh, talk about those various scenarios and try to come to some conclusion uh, about why they did not play out, why things did not play out that way. (coughs) But what I'd like to start with is the question of, or or the point that once secession started, that transformed the debate, the great national debate, from one about slavery and the expansion of slavery to disunion versus union. Obviously, these are related issues, and slavery does not disappear from the discussion because many of the proposed compromises focused around the issue of slavery. But what faced the Lincoln well, what faced uh, Buchanan administration uh, in its last few months and what faced the Lincoln administration as it was preparing to take office was not an immediate question of what to do about slavery, but what to do about secession. And so I'd like to start with the, the discussion there. And I think the first point to focus on and this often turns into quite an interesting debate, is the legitimacy of secession. Is secession under the United States Constitution a legitimate action? Obviously, the seven state, a majority of the people in the seven states that seceded, because they all elected delegates to a convention, thought that it was a legitimate exercise of state sovereignty. But clearly, the majority of people in the North thought that it was illegitimate. Because if they thought it was legitimate, they wouldn't have resisted it. 
even to the point of war. Or at least to a point where war became possible. So I'm wondering what all of you think about this question of the legitimacy, the legality, the constitutionality, however you want to phrase it. Does a state have the right to secede from the United States? I think I'll tell you him first. Okay. Um, I think it's a a long shot. In Article 6, the federal government has to guarantee the states a Republican form of government. I think the southern states use that as their argument to leave the Union. And the only... And, but there, there isn't any phrasing in the Constitution about how to leave the Union. And they, I don't think when they wrote it, they actually thought about it. <coughs> the only thing is for the next article, Article 7, how to enter the Union. You need, and then with the uh, Northwest Ordinance, I think, you know, you need so many people, and then you apply for statehood, and then you accept the Constitution. Um, and, you know, to me, you know, I teach government, and I had professors, you know, going through the Constitution. I had some that said it was unconstitutional. There's nothing in there, like I said, unless you have a very loose interpretation of, you know, the Republican form of government. Then I had a professor from the Ukraine, and he equated it to the to Ukraine wanting to break away from the Soviet bloc, you know, in the 1980s, and he thought that the people did have a right to flee. Okay, I think I saw Laurie's hand next. I don't think it was constitutional because nowhere, the founders didn't create a country that they thought that people would, or that states would be able to just leave at their at their will whenever they wanted. And I think the founders saw it as a government created by the people, for the people, not as the states ratifying. The states, the Southern's view was that if a state, um, states approved the Constitution, so therefore states could get out of it. But the, I don't think that's what the founders thought. They, they saw this as a government of the people, for the people, by the people. Um, to be able to say that a state, because they're mad because they can't do this, they can't do that, um, can just up and leave the union, that just doesn't sound like what the founding fathers had in their intention. If it wasn't their intention, they would have, like Sherry said, they would have taken and had some loophole to get out of it. If you wanted, if you, if you, um, or if they truly felt that you could leave the union at certain times, because Jefferson, he said a little revolution now and then is good for the soul or good for the people or whatever. Um, but. I mean, he still didn't put it in the Constitution that they could leave, you know, or they didn't have that added. So, I mean... I'd like to segue off of your argument, which segues off of her argument, and that's that even though the ratification process clearly stated that it needed the approval of nine states, the founders bypassed the state legislatures in the ratification process and basically went directly to the people through the ratification process. Therefore, since the Constitution was an agreement between the people of the United States and this new government, that the process was illegitimate. I think I saw a hand back over there next, so go ahead. Yeah. The Supreme Law. Um, How can that be open to interpretation of the Constitution and the Supreme Law? What, Trump, what trumps the Supreme Law? Revolution. He's curious. Revolution. Uh, revolution. Well, revolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. some, some Southerners did, in fact, assert the right of revolution. Uh, they may or may not have regarded uh, secession as a constitutional process, uh, but many of them also asserted the right of revolution. After all, the United States... Each individual colony had seceded from the British Empire <coughs> under the right of revolution. So. The right of revolution against it. Um, in favor of a bad idea. 
Well, I, I'm just saying that, that, that this was this was asserted by some Southerners, even if, whether or not they believed that it was a constitutional process, they did believe that all people had a right of revolution. Yes, behind, yeah, right there. I don't think any of the Southern states, especially South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia even, would have joined the Union had there not been the idea and the attitude and the opinion that they could get out of it, out of it if they wanted to. Where do, how do you come back? How do you come yeah, back? I'm, I'm going to try to go in some reasonable order. Yeah. I realize I teach in West Virginia. States succeeded the illegitimate. West Virginia is a bastard state. Uh, well, this one. <laughs> well, let me enter a, a, a slight dissent on that. The, act, the Constitution actually does say something about a process by which a state can be divided. But as a couple of you have noticed, noted, the Constitution does not say anything about how or whether a state can secede from the United States. But there is a, there is a process by which a state can be divided, and at least technically, and I emphasize technically, West Virginia followed that process. Now, I don't know if we need to get into whether or not that was actually um, exactly right, the process that they followed, but technically they did, yes. Texas, when they joined the Union, was told that they could split into five, into five different states. Mm -hmm. So... Um, they never did, though. Oh, no. <laughs> Although some people want to, but that's another yeah. but they never, But they were told that they could. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Back there. Striped shirt. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with the gentleman in front about the, the, the nature of the Constitution, how it was taken to the people originally for ratification. But I also know that within the, the Constitution itself, there, there are a couple of examples where you have uh, some concessions to the states. For example, the, the Electoral College and choosing the president and that kind of consensus or concession to the states. Or maybe the Senate—that uh, that, that whole fundamental debate between you know the people and the states. Um, so it, it, it tends to get muddied there, I think, in terms of how the Constitution maybe how it was ratified. But then there are elements within the Constitution which make clear notice that yeah, we've got to make sure the states are represented here and that they're on board and that they're with this too. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, right, right there. Two, two propositions. Jefferson had talked about a document containing majority that every 20 years or so people have the right to make changes. And we know that the Constitution was not the first government. And so you accept the premise that the Articles, which was the first legal government, was modified in the Constitution made later after. You have to know that you can change if it doesn't serve the people. And using the social contract and declaration of independence, government's not serving, the people have the right to alter or abolish. So from a Southern perspective, they were done in, and they had the right to change to protect themselves. They did assert the, um, the provision of the Declaration of Independence, that people have the right to alter or abolish their governments. Interestingly enough, they did not cite the provision of the Declaration of Independence that said all people are, all men are created equal. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to follow up with his, uh, on his points, and that was, but the whole concept of, of them believing that they were Jeffersonian peoples and they were going to be agriculture, they were going to be this, they were going to be that, 
was based in the Declaration of Independence, not so much in the Constitution itself, uh, because that was that right of revolution is in the Declaration of Independence. The, the whole concept of, of agrarian whatever seems to be in the, in the Declaration of Independence, not in the Constitution. That, that, that you know, and while they ignored uh, the one point, in a way they didn't. I mean, from their own point of view, uh, they counted all men mm -hmm. as created equal. All right? Yes, and they defined, you know, yeah, they defined out it of, their own way. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, to go back to the founding itself, you had you had at least Rhode Island was a long time ratifying the Constitution. How was Rhode Island treated or regarded during the period of time it had not ratified the Constitution? That, were they did they uh, were they under the Constitution? Uh, no. No. Despite the fact of I mean, I think they just sort of ignored them. Mm -hmm. uh, and said, you know, if you want to stay out, okay, but when you want to come in, we'll take you. Um, Pretty much, I think that's that's the way it's played. Yeah, right. Um, does the Confederate Constitution have a right for states to leave? Yeah, that, 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 I'm glad you brought up that question. Did everybody hear the question? Does the Confederate Constitution uh, allow for states to secede? Not explicitly, but the preamble to the Confederate Constitution, as most of you probably know, 90% of the Confederate Constitution is word for word the same as the United States Constitution. And there are some significant changes. Um, but one of the changes that's to the point that you raise is the preamble to the Confederate Constitution, and I think I can quote it almost word for word, it starts out the same as the preamble of the United States Constitution. It says, we the people of the Confederate States of America, comma, each state acting in its sovereign capacity, comma, do hereby ordain, etc. So they do add this significant clause uh, which strongly implies, without explicitly saying, each state acting in sovereign capacity, that the states would have the right. On the other hand, it would be interesting to know how the um, Jefferson Davis administration would have acted, at, uh, would have would have acted if, let's say, Virginia decided in 1863 that it wanted to get out um, and return to the United States. What did happen in 1863 and 64 is that a, uh, a, a candidate for governor in North Carolina named William Holden, uh, who had basically, well, his critics charged him with being a Reconstructionist, that is, wanting to, a, tra a traitor to Southern, to the Confederacy, wanting to get back into the United States. Uh, and he he denied that, he, but he did say that North Carolina should act in its sovereign capacity to try to negotiate a peace, an end to the war with the United States. Now, the Jefferson Davis administration said that's treason, and it will lead to North Carolina leaving the Confederacy and going back into the Union, and uh, so that seems to imply that Jefferson Davis didn't like the idea of North Carolina seceding from the Confederacy in the middle of the war, and regarded that as treason to the Confederacy. So, um, just for what it's worth, um, North Carolina actually took seriously, or tried to, Holden was defeated uh, by a pro-Confederate candidate for governor. But it did raise an awful ruckus o over that very issue for six months in uh, 1864 during the <coughs> war. 
Well, I, some other hands. Yes, Paul. You had said, well, somebody back there had said that Article 6 guarantees a Republican form of government, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily mean that the state has to to guarantee, take up on that guarantee, because the states also have a right to limit their representation. And if I'm not mistaken, after the Civil War, to, in order to ratify the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, didn't they deny seats in the Senate and the House well, to uh, Southern... Two Southern delegates to the they, uh, Congress uh, in in December 1865, <clears throat> the first Congress that met after the end of the Civil War, uh, the clerk of the House and the corresponding official in the Senate refused to call the names of the Southern states until Congress could decide what the terms of readmission would be. Um, so, in fact, yeah, until and basically they made ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment a prerequisite for. Being readmitted to uh, full representation in, in Congress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that we're quoting Thomas Jefferson quite a bit about this question, but he was the author of the Compact Theory of Government that legitimizes secession. Mm-hmm. So we need to be careful of our sources. Mm-hmm. Although that just, that becomes ambigu- ambiguous because uh, Madison wrote the Virginia Resolutions, and Jefferson wrote the Kentucky Resolutions. Uh, but Madison was still alive in 1832 at the time of the um, nullification crisis in, in South Carolina. And on that occasion, Madison being almost the only original founder still alive, uh, strongly denied that states had a right to secede. Um, now, you know, maybe he thought differently in 1799. Uh, but in 1832, that's, that's what he said, because South Carolina was asserting that right uh, in 1832 as part of its right to assert, asserting a, a right to nullify federal law, too. Yes. Yeah, back way back there, yeah. And, and, uh, using the phrase, the people, and the people have the right to secede or, or uh, change the government, um, does that mean the everybody in the entire United States will therefore vote on whether or not certain states can secede, or do we mean the people as only the people of the states that want to secede? Well, here was the legitimate. Here was the um, rationale that <coughs> seceding states expressed, uh, which was basically the compact theory of the Constitution. The theory was that the Constitution was a compact among the several states. And that in 1787 or 1788, each state had called a convention elected by the voters to determine whether they would ratify the United States Constitution. And most of them did, eventually. (coughs) Even Rhode Island did. Um, In 1860 and 1861, Secessionist leaders said, we can reverse that process. We will call a state convention, we will call a new convention to determine whether or not we are going to withdraw our ratification and reassert the sovereignty that we exercised before we ratified the Constitution. In other words, the compact theory of the Constitution that the Southerners um, uh, put forth was that um, each state was it, it, when ratifying the Constitution each state was delegating certain attributes of sovereignty to a federal government 
like the power to conclude treaties, the power to raise a national army, the power to govern interstate commerce, the power to coin money, and all of the other things that are in, in the Constitution. But a state can withdraw that ratification. The state yielded some of these attributes of sovereignty, but it did not yield the fundamental sovereignty itself. And it could reassert that sovereignty by the vote of another convention elected by the voters. That's the process that every seceding state except Tennessee uh, did. And Tennessee, which didn't secede, as you know, until after the, the firing on Fort Sumter and Lincoln's call for militia, uh, the state they didn't they thought didn't have time to do that. So the state legislature voted to take the state out of the union and to submit that to a referendum of the people. But every other state acted, uh, and of course Tennessee had not been one of the original uh, thirteen states, so it, followed, it it felt it could follow a somewhat different procedure. But that that was the that was the legal process that Southerners asserted. Um, just to take the other, I I, uh, I think that you read Lincoln's. Well, you probably haven't read everything that Lincoln said about this, but you read some. What was Lincoln's response to some of these arguments? Any of you remember from reading that? I mean, basically, he expressed uh, as well as anybody the Northern rejection of these arguments. Um, anybody remember how he set this all up? Whether he's right or not is another issue, but. Anybody remember? Yeah. Doesn't he basically make the argument that the Union is perpetual, that it predates the Constitution? Yes. Um, no country would ever uh, allow for the legal termination you know, of a contract. You can't get into a contract and decide you're not going to honor it unless all agree. Kind of a legal perspective. Yeah, he said all of those things. You're absolutely right. Um, his argument was that the states never had an independent existence outside of the Union. And that's a pretty clear and persuasive argument for all those states that came in after the original 13, is it not? Uh, they were originally territories, except Texas, obviously. Um, and became members of the Union by, the, by an act of Congress accepting the new state constitution. So it becomes a little bit shaky. But he also said that even the original 13 states had no existence outside or prior to the United States. They were colonies. And the first Continental Congress, or the second Continental Congress actually, I guess wasn't it, that declared independence. And then they became states, but they only became states Uh, as part of the United States. They had no prior independent sovereign existence. This is Lincoln's argument. I mean, remember, he's a lawyer. Of course, most of the secessionists, they're also lawyers. They're all lawyers. There's another interesting twist about this. Um, if, you, if you look at the um, Articles of Confederation in 1781, uh, one of the phrases in the articles is that the union created by these articles shall be perpetual. And then 
What does the preamble of the United States Constitution say? Do you remember the first exact, the first sentence? In order to more, so Lincoln's argument is, you know, if it's more perfect than perpetual, what does that mean? Well, all right. Um, in a sense, there's a kind of legal hair splitting going on here, isn't there? I mean, both sides are able to point to certain things that justify their position. The compact theory, state sovereignty. Uh, Jefferson Davis added a twist to this. You know that the preamble of the U.S. Constitution, as he pointed out, the original draft of it says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, do hereby. Jefferson Davis, uh, in, just, in his memoirs, justified, well, I think even at the time, in fact, I think maybe it's in, in the reading that he said the original draft said, we, the people of um, you know, New Hampshire, Virginia, Massachusetts, he named all 13 states, do hereby ordain the Constitution. And he pointed to this as an argument that this was not ratified by the people, but rather by the states, and that it was merely a stylistic change that, that made it sound like it was being we, the people of the United States, all the people. Rather, it's we, the people of Virginia, and we, the people of... Uh, Massachusetts, and therefore the people of Massachusetts or Virginia could withdraw that ratification. But and he wasn't even a lawyer. <laughs> um, there's a lot of hair splitting going on here, and I don't think anybody's going to win or lose this argument, are they? So let's let's forget the Constitution for the moment. While a lot of this debate in 1860 and 1861, and for that matter, years before, many years before, and even after, uh, was couched in these constitutional terms, I think that underneath it was a was a different was a kind of substratum of of um, practical, tough, pragmatic questions, and that is. Uh, from the point of view, we've already talked about it from the Southern point of view uh, uh, in the first session this morning. They felt that they had, um, that they were completely separate people, that the United States government no longer represented their, their interests, uh, that uh, they had no say in the election of a president, uh, that nobody in Alabama knew anybody who voted for Lincoln, uh, and all the rest of it. We've already covered it. <coughs> From the northern point of view, what is the practical issue? Yeah. Is that the Webster-Hain debates? Excuse me, the Webster-Hain debates? I mean, that without union, you have no protection of liberty? Well, that was certainly part of it, I think. But in a way, it was even less abstract than that, I think. What would become of the existence of the United States if any state could withdraw? Well, let's take, the, I mean, since we like the 2004 analogy, you know, I, I suspect, in fact, I know from what I've heard, that there are some people in this room uh, and who didn't, you know, who didn't like the outcome of the 2004 election. Uh, well, suppose there were enough of you in Ohio. Well, of course, it wouldn't be Ohio because you look. Pennsylvania, New York. Mark lives in New York. We're right thinking. The, the bluest of the blue states. God bless. Uh, uh, what if New York said, "Okay, we don't like George Bush. We're going to leave." Um, and uh, you know, four years from now, 
I don't know. John Edwards is elected. And his own state decides they don't like John Edwards. So North Carolina, what would become of the United States? That, I think, was the bedrock issue for people in the North, was the fatal precedent of secession. If one state or seven or 11 can leave because they don't like the outcome of a presidential election, it's, it's more than that, obviously, but uh, if then, you know, any state can leave any time. So in the 1890s, when Kansas and Nebraska and, and various states didn't like the the, uh, the fact that Wall Street was running the country, they voted for the populists, and the populists lost. Well, we'll leave. Or California, you know, sixth largest economy in the world. Why do we need the rest of the United States? We'll leave. That I think was the fundamental bedrock practical question for people like Lincoln. Uh, and they sometimes said it. I mean, even Buchanan said it in his uh, State of the Union message, as we now call it, or his annual message of Congress. In he used the phrase, I forget how many times, rope of sand. The United States is a rope of sand if any state can leave of its own will. There, I think, you know, apart from all the constitutional arguments, and Lincoln said it too, no state has a fundamental has in its fundamental law the, the right to dissolve itself or something. I forget how he said it. Uh, yes? Just a, a smart aleck note, I suppose. You said South or North Carolina would leave. They have a provision in their state constitution. They can't leave anymore. When they were readmitted, they put it in. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I okay, forget North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In, uh, on the front page of today's uh, plain dealer, yeah. The headline reads, Should Northeast Ohio secede from the United States? <laughs> What's the answer? Um, I didn't get to the all of it. I was driving. Sam Fullwood wrote a column on that, and he said, yes, we should. It was uh, the, somebody in Summit County, uh, the mayor or some official in Summit County says, that Northeast Ohio is much too different from the rest of Ohio and therefore should secede and form its own state. We would be called the state of Western Reserve. Well, let's, we become uh, let's Franklin Reserve. County join you. Well, you know, but this is a different issue. Again, because the Constitution <coughs> makes a provision for the legitimacy in that process. The Ohio legislature would have to consent to that. But if they did, if they did, then you know, the state of Western Reserve could legitimately come into existence and the United States Constitution would require that it be admitted as a separate state. That, but that's, a, that's you know, that, that means that and Texas could still carve itself up into five states. But that wouldn't jeopardize the existence of the United States. That is the issue, I think, yeah. I grew up in New York, and in the 60s and 70s, the big deal was that the city of New York was going to secede from the state. Mm -hmm. And and there were full page ads in the mm -hmm. New York Times and they were and they took there were a whole bunch of people who took this really seriously. Mm -hmm. And then the corollary to that is Staten Island, which is a borough in the city of New York, they have for years mm -hmm. said that they want to secede from the state from the city of New York. So therefore and there were people who actually take I mean for a long time, this was really taken seriously that the city would secede, and there were talks up in Albany, and which is the state capital, and that this would happen, and and, and they did not joke about it. I mean, there no, were, I, no, there I were serious 
I think it's I think it's quite quite true, and and I I, don't, I suspect none of you are from California, but everybody knows a little about California. Uh, and for years, there have been serious proposals to split California in half because Northern and Southern California have no love for each other and are always at odds with each other about any number of things. But that is actually a legitimate constitutional. It can be done. It only has been done once, and that's with West Virginia, and that was a slightly dubious process, even though it, could, even though it did conform technically. Uh, but it could be done. Yes. When you look at this fatalistic view here, I mean, Daniel Webster spells the whole thing out in the Compromise of 1850, what's to become of the Army, what's to become of the Navy, what's to become of the public lands. I mean, he sacrificed every, his, his whole career on this whole issue of, you know, we can't do this because what do we do with all this stuff? Yeah, and this is part of the practical issue. <laughs> Although a lot of Southerners would have said these issues are negotiable. If you recognize the legitimacy of secession and we set up the independent Confederate States of America, we will get together and negotiate some kind of prorated um, solution of uh, uh, the, pub, the national debt. You know, we, we constitute uh, one, you know, one uh, two fifths of the population, so we'll undertake. We'll take two fifths. I mean, these are negotiable issues. But what a lot of people said in the North is the principle of secession is non-negotiable. Because if you yield to that principle, then the nation no longer exists. Because if, if one state can secede, any state can secede any time. And instead of the United States of America, you would have the disunited States of America. You wouldn't have that. You wouldn't have a country. That, that, you know, whatever you think about that, I think that was, that was at the bottom of the northern resistance to secession. Yes. I think also there was a great admiration for the founding fathers and to let the country fall apart would be yes. respecting their efforts. Yeah. Yeah, it would be a. And, and as Lincoln said this too many times, um, there were a lot of people in. The United States was one of the few, in fact, with the exception of Switzerland, you could say it was the only democratic republic in the world. Nearly every other country in Europe, every country in Europe, uh, was a monarchy of some kind or another, or a dukedom or a principality in the case of all these little German states. Um, and although Latin American countries were republics, they were notoriously unstable, and a lot of them had sort of dictators uh, and so on around the world. There were very few republics. And another fear, and Lincoln expressed this as much as anybody, uh, <coughs> is that this would confirm the opinion of all of those Tories and monarchists and reactionaries and conservatives, etc., in Europe, that a republic could never survive. That this bold experiment of 1776 would be swept into the dustbin of history. And so that, uh, that I think, was there. Because so many Americans, I mean, it's related to your point about their admiration for the Founding Fathers. Founding Fathers, they said, had set up this wonderful, but... And, and bold and, and forward-looking but risky experiment. Uh, no king, uh, no aristocracy, no you know no established aristocracy, no no established church, a uh, bill of rights, uh, and you know this is notoriously uh, unstable and it's going to collapse. Uh, look at what happened to the Roman Republic. Look what happened to this to the republics, the city republics of the Renaissance, in the Renaissance Italy. Eventually they all succumbed to tyranny or 
and that's the fate of every republic, and now it's going to be the fate of the United States. That issue was very much, in, I think, in, in people's minds in 1861, too. Now, of course, the Southerners would respond and saying, look, we're just setting up another republic. We're not undermining the whole concept of Republican government. We're exercising our majority rule to set up our own republic. But the North said, well, if you can do that, you know, what's, what's happened to, uh, what's happened to the, to the any, you know, everything will fall apart if, that, if that's possible. So this was a great debate, I think, of 1860-61. Yeah. What would be, uh, under Lincoln or even us today, then, the parameters under which you would be able to operate a new constitutional convention, if it was called by, under, uh, you know, I know we want to get away from the Constitution, but what would be the limitations uh, of what they did? You hear a lot about that. You don't want to have a constitutional convention because of all the it might do it for one thing, but then it would be open to all kinds of yeah, things. All kinds well, of things. <coughs> mm-hmm. Could it disunion? Well, I suppose a new constitutional convention could have written into a new constitution the right to secede. Well, I mean, one today. Well, even today, sure. Okay. Well, what, I mean, to take it back to 1860 and 61, you've got, by January... Six, and then, of course, Texas was in the process of going out. Seven states that seceded. Uh, the United States Congress was in session. Uh, Jefferson Davis was leaving. Um, Judah Benjamin was leading. They all were leaving as their states seceded. But Congress was trying to do something about this. What can be done? What are the <coughs> proposed alternatives to uh, allowing secession? Are there any compromises that we can come up with that will stem further secessions and maybe pave the way for these states to come back. What can we do about this? So, what happened? I mean, calling a new constitutional convention was brooded about, but that's such a complicated process that basically they look for other possibilities uh, short of that. It wasn't as if, you know, in December or January, say, well, there's nothing we can do about this. War is inevitable. Uh, people didn't think war was inevitable. They thought it was possible, and some thought it was even likely, but always. Yeah. I, I'm just throwing it out. I uh, hadn't, uh, it in some ways or another, uh, under John Marshall and, and the other uh, Supreme Court chief justices, before the Civil War, had spent a great deal of time uh, demanding that federal law uh, was supreme, that the states had to be limited in, in the kinds of, of things that they could do, rivers, bays, and harbors, mm-hmm. whatever else were national. They belonged to all of the people of the United States, not just simply the people of a certain particular state. And, uh, you know, after that, in, in the... Uh, 1900s, you know, we get into to much more of a of a protecting the common ordinary American, whether he's in that state or not, from the states. I this this concept of of at the first protecting uh, the American citizen from the state, so that they have access to everything and whatever else. Didn't this sort of lay a groundwork for no secession? Yeah, I think so. Certainly, Marshall, the uh, the assertion of national supremacy uh, over a variety of things um, by the Marshall Court strengthened and centralized the the American government. I think 
uh, a lot of Southerners feared that continuing centralization was part of what they were concerned about. Uh, that would reach down beyond state borders and, you know, maybe even abolish slavery. Um, whether that, or, or, or at least, uh, as, you, as a couple of you pointed out earlier, uh, so many new free states would come in that eventually they could amend the Constitution to abolish slavery. Uh, all of that, I think, was part of the the, 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 the issues that were being discussed, or at least uh, um, underlay the issues that were being discussed in 1860-61. Yes? Would, would there have been any attempt to get the Supreme Court to say something on secession? Well, they, they, uh, this would have been the same court that uh, had issued the Dred Scott decision, so the Lincoln administration wasn't too eager to. Uh, <laughs> so then it would just be more for practical reasons. I don't want to open that can of worms and ask the Supreme Court. Is that what the thinking was? Um, I think that was probably under underneath it, but there weren't too many serious proposals to, on either side to refer this to the Supreme Court. Uh, rather, I think the the efforts to do something about this took a different uh, a different route. Well, you've all heard of the Crittenden Compromise, haven't you? Uh, that was at the core of these efforts. What was the Crittenden Compromise? Yeah, they were redraw the line, allow for uh, slavery to exist south of the the old thirty six thirty line, which would have kept Southerners happy because that allows for Cuba, Latin America, which was really the only place slavery could expand to anyway. Mm-hmm. That was the key feature of the Crittenden Compromise because the territorial question was the key uh, one that was at issue here. Uh, but actually, the Crittenden Compromise, as Crittenden proposed it, he's a Kentucky senator, as you know, so he felt that he was in a position to mediate between the extremes of both sides, um, was a whole series of constitutional amendments, I think maybe six altogether, but I'm not sure I can remember what each of the six said. But one of them was a, was a uh, an amendment to guarantee the, that that slavery would never be abolished by the federal government, an unamendable mend- amendment to the Constitution uh, that would forever protect slavery from the national government. Then the the redrawings of the thirty six thirty line. Uh, there were other provisions having to do with the recovery of fugitive slaves that would have strengthened the fugitive slave provision in the Constitution. And I forget what else it would do. Um, but basically, I think that was the, the proposal, not a new constitutional convention, but rather a series of amendments, uh, either as a package or at least certain individual amendments. And the key one was the was the um, territorial one. Well, what happened to that? Yeah. Or, well, whatever you want to talk Some about. Some people think that uh, slavery is on its way out because the mechanization was on. What's your take would slavery have died a natural death by 1870, 1880,? Well, nobody can know for sure the answer to that question, but from the point of view of the people alive in 1860, slavery looked uh, stronger and better than ever. Um, since 1850, cotton production had doubled, the price of slaves had doubled. Slavery, the southern economy seemed in, in fine shape. Uh, and people in the South looked forward to, I mean, they didn't anticipate a lot of the uh, the technological changes which a a few decades out might have undermined the economic viability of slavery. So there wasn't 
there wasn't this feeling that slavery was going to die out of natural or economic causes anytime soon in in the debate in 1860. Yeah. Didn't Lincoln nix the Cadenian Amendments? Yes. They, uh, Lincoln, Lincoln who was, of course, at home in Springfield uh, preparing to go to Washington, <coughs> sent letters to Republican congressional leaders saying, look, we just won an election on the basis of our platform to prevent the ex- further extension of slavery. And now this amendment would in- write into the Constitution the, the position of the people who lost the election. It's a form of blackmail, he said. They're trying to blackmail us. Uh, is basically what he said and so the Republicans refused to accept the only part of the Crittenden Compromise that they accepted was the the unamendable amendment to um, say that slavery as a right to exist in the states and the United States government can never by constitutional amendment or any other way change the legality of slavery in the states by the way does this idea of a Unamendable amendment to the Constitution seem odd to you or not? Yeah, very odd. Is there any part of the Constitution that's unamendable? Yeah, yeah. There actually is one. Yeah, the United States Senate. It, every state shall perpetually have two senators. So that Wyoming uh, and California both have the same number of people in the Senate. Delaware and Ohio. So, and, and since an amendment is just as much a part of the Constitution as the original uh, articles, uh, there is such, it is possible to have an unamendable amendment. And Lincoln was willing to accept that because he said it adds nothing. The Constitution already protects slavery, so just writing that into amendment doesn't change things. Because his anticipation is that slavery would eventually be abolished by the states themselves when they came to see that, he, A, it was... Um, economically uh, backward or be immoral you know Delaware will abolish slavery Maryland will abolish slavery and gradually it will disappear and that's what the founding fathers had expected and that's what I still expect so it's okay to put in the constitution that the federal government can never abolish it because they don't have that power now so what difference does it make so Lincoln was willing to accept that now and, and actually enough republicans in, in uh, Congress were willing to accept it too. A minority of Republicans, but along with the Democrats and the border state unionists that were still in the, in the Congress, they actually got the two-thirds majority for that amendment, and it was sent to the states. The original 13th Amendment, instead of abolishing slavery, which of course the eventual 13th Amendment did, guaranteed the future of slavery. And two states ratified that. Do you know which states they were? Ohio. Ohio was one of them. <laughs> The other one was Maryland. But then the war started and, you know, no other states ratified it. In fact, I don't think it ever could have gotten the three-quarters of the states. But at least it was the one compromise measure growing out of these efforts that actually got farther, got out of Congress. Now, I don't think that would have brought the seven states back that had already gone out. They, they basically said, you know, forget it. This doesn't, you know, this is not, we don't care about this. We're all, we've already created our. This didn't wasn't passed by Congress till March of '61, and the Confederate States of America, with its seven states, was already a going concern by that time. They said, "Forget it, you know, we're not going to come back just because you passed that amendment." They also said, even if you pass the territorial 
provision of the Crittenden Compromise, we're not coming back. Uh, it's a fait, you know, our independence is a fait accompli. But it might have prevented the other states from going out, the other eight slave states. So that, I think, was the kind of basic effort to avert, uh, to try to deal with this crisis, to defang the crisis. And even, even after the Confederate States of America had been formed, and they had elected Jefferson Davis as their provisional president and all the rest of it, I think Lincoln and, and Seward and the other members of the incoming new administration hoped that if they could somehow maintain the status quo, uh, they could stem further secessions by the other states, such important states as Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, big states compared to the states that had gone out. And maybe eventually um, good sense and rationality would reassert itself even in Mississippi and Alabama, maybe never in North South Carolina. We don't know about South, but the rest of them, maybe they'll come back. If we can somehow just maintain the status quo as of March 1861. So, what happened? Yeah. Well, for one thing, uh, Lincoln, uh, while he, from what I understand, while he uh, really wanted to preserve the Union, he didn't wouldn't didn't want to take military action to preserve the Union. But when it became a case of the the, the new Confederacy attacks the Union forces, then it becomes a rebellion and justifies. Uh, uh, Military force to, to overcome. So he's not he's not using military force to keep them from seceding, but he's using military force uh, in response to their military force against the United States forces. Okay. Well, well how did things get to the point where the Confederates actually attacked? <laughs> Had to Fort Sumter. Uh, uh, I forget all the details on it. But well, what about this Fort Sumter issue? Because. Um, that's the key. That's the key thing about uh, the alternative scenarios that are possible here. When to go back to our distinction between secession, this cause of secession, and the cause of war. In theory, at least, you can have secession without war, and there are various ways in which that could have happened. One would be for the Lincoln administration. The Northern people say, "All right, Erring Sisters." Go in peace. You know, you want to be independent, okay. See if you can, you know, see if you can have an independent country with seven states. Um, you know, maybe in the back of their mind they say, well, let them try it for a year or two and they'll come crawling back, begging to come back in, et cetera. Maybe, maybe not. Um, they could have said that, but they didn't. Uh, they, could have, they could have done what they actually did, which was to offer just a little bit of a concession with this, what was called the Corwin Amendment, the, the, the perpetually guaranteeing slavery, the one that Ohio and Maryland ratified. Uh, and, and, and Lincoln could also say, just like you know, the Bush administration said, we're not going to attack North Korea. Lincoln could say, we're not going to attack you. Uh, you won't have a war unless you start it yourself. Um, and hope that, you know, they could wait it out. The other eight slave states are still in the Union. They have more population and a much stronger economy uh, than the ones that have gone out. 
sooner or later the others will come back we'll just wait them out but that couldn't happen because of Fort Sumter well why is Fort Sumter such a you know an issue that cannot be weighted out yeah it's in South Carolina for one it's it's location yeah uh, the the heart of the new confederacy cradle of the confederacy Confederacy. Charleston yeah Okay, yeah, that made it certainly a, a sticky issue. Yes. Isn't it also a matter of not only where it's located, but is, does that port not also represent part of the sovereign United States that he would either be abandoning or giving away, thus recognizing the South's right to own something? Well, yes, uh, and that was an issue. However, you could say, you know, you could, I could come back and say, well, the Southerners had already seized all kinds of other federal property. They'd seized state arsenals. They'd seized the United States Mint in places like New Orleans. Uh, they'd already seized other forts um, and other federal property. So that principle had already been conceded, even before Lincoln took office. And the only reason they hadn't seized Fort Sumter was because um, on December 26th, 1860, uh, 90 or 80 to 80, 80 to 90 United States soldiers had taken up residence in Fort Sumter, and the only way they could seize it would be to attack it or to negotiate its its um, uh, turnover to South Carolina. But the other things they had seized had been virtually undefended. But the negotiation wouldn't the very act of negotiating be in and of itself a recognition of the South's right? To negotiate? Exactly. So Lincoln refused to negotiate because that would have been implied recognition. You're right. Absolutely. So another hand over here somewhere. Um, okay. Um, well, um, yes. Just simply that um, Fort Sumter could have, there, since it's in the harbor itself, is more defendable than any of those other posts. So a lot of posts on uh, in Charleston itself were abandoned. As Anderson and the others fled to Fort Sumter. Yeah, they, they um, yielded Fort Moultrie, which is what they had abandoned. Where right? they were. So it, it gave them that little bit of time to develop a, a contingency plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, way back there. And Fort Sumter could have formed its right in blockading Charleston Harbor. That's right. It could stop any ship from coming in or out. That's right. Yeah. Didn't they also start to accept runaway slaves in Fort Sumter? I'm not sure they actually did, but they could have. Um, I, I don't know. The, the slaves answer. came there, but they were sent back, I think. Okay, yeah. Sumter itself was not a completed port yet. Either. No, it wasn't. So, I mean, it wasn't quite complete, and of course, when it was complete, it was designed for, for 600 men, and they only had 80, so they, you know, they could only ha- manage a few of the guns. You're right, but it wasn't completed. It was sort of the usual United States government project. It started in 1829, and it was still building in 1861. But there, you know, the United States had been at peace. There was no foreign threat. Uh, Mexico didn't threaten, and uh, so a lot of these projects, these forts, and you know, Congress needs to appropriate the money. Well, we'll appropriate it next year. There's no real threat right now, so it had been going. And of course, to build it, they had to haul down several thousand tons of granite from New Hampshire or Vermont uh, because it was built on an artificial granite island in the harbor. So it took a while to do all that, and there was no urgency about it until 1860. <laughs> yes? Wasn't there a prospect of imminent, you know, resupplying or possible reinforcement? Didn't that push the 
Yeah, what about that? What's the situation there? I mean, this this gets down to the nitty gritty of, of what really happened. Yeah. Weren't the, weren't the men there running out of supplies, and um, didn't Lincoln send a, a message to Davis saying, "I'm sending supplies only," and um, Davis fired anyway? Did he send that message to Davis? No. If he had sent it to Davis, it would be like <coughs> negotiations. Uh, it would be recognizing legitimacy of Jefferson Davis as a. So he sent it to the governor of South Carolina, <coughs> yeah, a guy named Francis Pickens. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the 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 issue was as long as as long as Anderson, Major Robert Anderson, who was a who was not a provocative figure because he was from Kentucky and he was married to <coughs> a woman from Georgia. So it's not as if he was some flaming radical Yankee down there in Charleston Harbor, but he was a loyal member of the United States Army, so he was not going to, you know, to turn traitor and give, give up this federal property and lower the American flag. This is not the best solution to the response to uh, demands from, from South Carolina, despite his, his, southern, his own southern birth and even to some degree southern loyalties. Um, but uh, it, it, as long as he could stay there and as long as the South Carolinians or the Confederates didn't want to rock the boat, uh, maybe Lincoln's policy of just sort of waiting them out might work. Um, but it became clear, and in fact, the first communication that Lincoln got after he was president was a letter from Anderson saying, we only have enough food to last for maybe another six weeks. So what do you do? Yeah, what do you do? That's the big decision that Lincoln has to face, or his cabinet has to face. Uh, what was the first inclination of the... New Lincoln administration to do about that, yeah. Well, some some of the cabinet members wanted to go ahead and shoot their way in. Some wanted to shoot their way in. What would have been the likely result of that? Well, then the Union would have, or the North would have been, been started shooting, started the war. Yeah. And then, of course, there was also the threat from some of your, four, at least four of your eight border states were threatening any type of course of action by the, the federal government would have sent them to join the South. Yeah, not only those four, but probably uh, six of them, maybe even seven, would have gone out if, oh, but Delaware maybe, would have gone out if the North had started that war through an act of aggression. It was clear from the sort of flavor of the public debate in the newspapers and in, in Congress, as long as it was in session till March 4th, that any effort by coercion, that was the word in those days, coercion, any effort by the Lincoln administration to coerce the seceding seating states would be counterproductive because it would just force at least four and maybe seven more of them out. Uh, so that alternative, even though some of the more uh, what we might call fire-eating Republicans wanted to do it, didn't look like uh, it looked like a non-starter. So, what are the other alternatives? What's the opposite alternative? Yeah. Well, the opposite, we do nothing. Uh, they sent provisions only, or claimed to be sending provisions only. Well, that's the alternative that Lincoln eventually chose. But that's not the one that the cabinet, the majority of the cabinet first proposed. 
Yeah, pull them out. Pull them out. As a gesture of peace uh, that would reassure the, the state still in the Union uh, that the Lincoln administration had no warlike purposes, no warlike intentions. Uh, and he, Lincoln was getting a lot of messages from unionists in states like Virginia that that's what he should do. And in fact, he was open to the possibility of that kind of compromise. Anybody know the details of this? Well, before he actually was inaugurated, uh, a couple of days after he arrived in Washington, I think on February 23rd or 24th, he met with a delegation of Virginia. Uh, the Virginia uh, convention that had been called by the legislature to determine Virginia's course, whether it should secede or not secede, uh, was in session. And in fact, they had taken one vote in February and had voted down secession, had voted against secession. <coughs> but they also decided to stay in, in session as a way of putting pressure on the Lincoln administration not to, you know, not to rock the boat, not to attack. Yes? What role did former President John Tyler play in that? Well, uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, several of the border states, and Virginia took the lead in this, uh, called for a, um, a convention of delegates from all the states uh, to meet in Washington in February to see if they could come up with some kind of a solution. A, a, a convention of, of um, wise men, of uh, moderate men, of old heads, of, uh, you know, that, he, there are hotheads here who have gotten us into big trouble. Let's see if we can't get some, you know, some of the um, cooler heads together and see if we can come up with something that will stop this process. So they met in Washington. Some of the newspapers on both sides ridiculed it as the Old Gentleman's Convention. <coughs> and John Tyler of Virginia was elected chairman of that convention. And it met through most of February. And delegates from most of the northern states, except the ones too far away to get there, like Oregon and <coughs> California. And I think maybe there weren't delegates from Minnesota. I'm not sure about that. But most of the other northern states said delegates. And so did all of the slave states still in the Union. But the seven that had gone out didn't send delegates. And it was an exercise in futility. Uh, they met for, I think, about three weeks, debated all kinds of proposals, and basically what they came up with was a modified version of the Crittenden Compromise. Now, once one of the modifications was fairly significant. Uh, the territorial um, provision of the Crittenden Compromise, the 3630, said that in, basically it said in, um, uh, in all territories now held by the United States, Comma, or hereafter acquired, comma, slavery shall be prohibited north of the line of 3630 and permitted south of that line. Well, the, the key phrase in the quarrel of any northern Republican was that phrase, or hereafter acquired. 
a lot of Northerners and maybe even some Republicans, although maybe not Lincoln, uh, might have been willing to accept a compromise that legitimated slavery uh, in the line south of 3630 in what was part of the United States then, because in fact New Mexico under the Compromise of 1850 already did have a slave code. Um, hardly any slaves there, but it wouldn't have been a change. Uh, but it was the phrase, or hereafter acquired, that was the sticking point, because that seemed to open up the possibility of Cuba, of more of Mexico, of Nicaragua, whatever. All of these areas that the filibustering had taken place, or the efforts to annex had taken place in the 1850s. What the old gentleman's convention came up with was a modification that left out that phrase. But by that time, there was too much water over the dam for anything to, you know... So it was an exercise in futility. But that's the John Tyler <coughs> Convention. The one thing it did was to, was to prevent Virginia and the other Upper South states from doing anything during the whole month of February uh, and into March when, when, they, when there was some possibility that this convention might come up with something. Uh, but it doesn't come up, I mean, it does come up with something, but Congress, would, you know, in, in the very last days of the... 36th Congress, which expired on March 4th. Congress, by that time, you know, said, "Forget it. You know, that's uh, we can't we can't accept this. It's not do, do, it's not going to do any good if we do accept it, because uh, the Confederate States of America already are going concern." And so basically, nothing came nothing came of that. Um, and so it's now March, uh, and the Lincoln administration <coughs> is in. And South Carolina commissioners are in Washington hoping to meet with the Lincoln administration and negotiate the turnover of Fort Sumter. And Lincoln gets a, a letter from Major Robert Anderson saying, we can hold out for no more than six more weeks and then we'll be starved out. So what does, what's Lincoln going to do? Well, he's already actually met informally with a delegation of Virginians, and of course, Virginia's still in the Union, so it's not a recognition of, of anybody. <coughs> and supposedly, you know, this isn't written down anywhere, but it was later, Lincoln, in effect, said to the Virginia people, uh, you know, if you'll adjourn your state, your convention, without doing anything more, you've already voted against seceding. If you'll adjourn the convention and go home, stay in the Union, uh, I'll give serious consideration to pulling out of Fort Sumter. A state for a fort is no bad bargain, he, he supposedly said. Well, nothing came of that. The Virginia uh, Convention stayed in session. Uh, at this time, when Lincoln said that, he didn't know, he didn't yet know about Fort Sumter. I mean, the supply is going to run out. He learns that on March 5th. So he calls his cabinet together. What are we going to do? And he calls his uh, general-in-chief, Winfield Scott. What are we going to do? What's the upshot of all that? This is now the first week, the second week of the Lincoln administration. What would you do? You've been President Lincoln. You pull out? No, he couldn't. To protect his political base, to honor his oath, he'd have to do something. 
provocative. What did he say in the inaugural address? Do you remember? About, about these issues. It's on March 4th, of course, now. Yeah? The disaffected people get to choose what to do. I'm not doing anything. He did say that, yeah. You can have no war without starting it yourself, is basically what he said. But he also said, uh, in his initial draft of the inaugural address, he intended to pledge to hold, possess, and repossess the federal property that has been seized, the federal property in the seceding states. Seward talked, or no, it was actually, well, Seward would have advised that, but it was actually Oliver Browning, uh, a good friend of his from Illinois, uh, who persuaded him to make that less provocative, not to pledge to repossess the property that had already been seized, but to hold, occupy, and possess federal property, i.e., Fort Sumter, plus, plus Fort Pickens in Florida, and a couple of you know, Fort Jefferson, if any of you have ever been there, and the, the last key of the Florida Keys, uh, they were still in federal possession, but the only one that was really a provocative at issue was Fort Sumter. He had said that, he, you know, in effect, he had said in his inaugural address that he was going to hold on to Fort Sumter, but couldn't without starting a war. Well, what, what's he going to do? His, his um, cabinet initial, with a couple of exceptions, uh, initially votes to pull out. And General Winfield Scott says, pull out. It's impossible to reinforce the fort without a naval armada and 20,000 troops to shoot their way into the harbor. And Lincoln said, I don't want to do that. You know, we don't have 20,000 troops to start with. And if I do that, I started the war. You know, I've, I've been the one who's attacked Pearl Harbor. Um, and, you know, that, that will just, that's not the thing to do. Um, and his Secretary of State, Seward, who everybody thinks is really going to run this administration, is actually, through an intermediary, telling these commissioners from South Carolina that Lincoln is going to pull up in the interest of preserving the peace and keeping Virginia and those other states in the Union. Uh, Lincoln, I don't think, knew that Seward was doing this, but he also knew that Seward wanted to do something like this. He wanted to pull out. I don't think he realized that Seward was making these <coughs> these uh, <coughs> contacts, not directly. Seward did not meet directly with the commissioners, but he used uh, John Campbell, who was a Supreme Court justice from Alabama, who had remained on the court. He had not yet gone with the state. He eventually did, once the war started. He resigned from the Supreme Court, but uh, he was still on the Supreme Court and was the senior mediary between uh, Seward and the South Carolina commissioners. And Seward was telling Campbell, and Campbell was passing the word on to these commissioners that Lincoln was going to pull out. Uh, and Seward was sort of spreading that word among the press. Uh, and and Lincoln uh, hadn't made any such decision yet, but in the second and third week of March, he couldn't really see any alternative to this. Uh, he was really frustrated by it, uh, couldn't sleep at night. Uh, one morning got up and, and keeled over in a faint. He was, under, I mean, he was under tremendous pressure to try to figure out what to do about this. And he was approached by 
Uh, Montgomery Blair, who was his postmaster general and a member of a famous and powerful political family, um, and Montgomery Blair's brother-in-law, who was Gustavus Fox, a former naval, naval officer and merchant captain, who said, look, I've got an idea. We can actually run supplies into the harbor under the cover of night uh, and reprovision Fort Sumter. And Lincoln said, you know, give me a detailed plan on how you might be able to do this. And in the meantime, he sent a couple of emissaries, one of them, uh, Stephen uh, Hurlbert, who was a good friend of his from Illinois, although he had been born in South Carolina, and Ward Lamont, to go down to Charleston and kind of, you know, see what the mood of the people was there. Is there any chance that we can keep the peace and maybe eventually even we, you know, track these people and come back? And both of them went down there and uh, came back and reported to Lincoln, not a chance, you know, they're determined. Um, and so what are you going to do? Well, uh, in the meantime, uh, Lincoln has come up with a new idea. Uh, he has taken the advice of Fox, but he's changed it to the so that he will actually do this openly. He will notify the governor of South Carolina that he's sending in provisions, food for hungry men. And if they let it come in, uh, he won't send in reinforcements. But if they resist, uh, the, the Navy ships that he's going to send down to accompany him will try to shoot their way into the harbor and not only send in the provisions, but also the reinforcements. But Lincoln couches it in, in terms of, you know, it's up to you. Uh, and that becomes what I think is a kind of brilliant solution to his problem. But there are a lot of obstacles to overcome. Seward is still playing his games. Um, and one of the things that Seward does is actually persuade Lincoln to meet with a delegate, a prominent delegate from Virginia, whose convention is still in session, on April 4th in Washington to see if he's, can't, he's going to try again to get Virginia to agree to, uh, to um, adjourn that convention so that it isn't hanging over Lincoln's head as a, with a threat to secede. Uh, in return for a promise to pull the troops out of Fort Sumter. But this would be seen as a bargain uh, that would be a two-sided bargain. The Southerners are making a major concession, or at least the Virginians are, but the other Upper South states are, are you know, they're just sitting there to wait to see what Virginia does. Virginia's the key here. And in return, you know, I'll pull the troops out of Sumter. Um, each of us is going to go halfway meet the other side. That's the kind of last chance, really. Nobody knows for sure what went on in that conference between Lincoln and a guy named John Baldwin from Virginia. Uh, basically, Baldwin later said 
Nobody kept any written record. There was nobody else, just the two guys there. Baldwin later said, I offered to, um, you know, to go back to Virginia and get the um, convention, to go back to Richmond and get the convention to adjourn. Uh, but Lincoln wouldn't accept. Lincoln later said that uh, I offered to pull the troops out, uh, but Baldwin told me that he didn't have the power to speak for the Virginia Convention. So nothing came of that. Uh, and a day or two later, Lincoln gave the final orders and sent the sent the letter by a personal envoy down to Pickens in South Carolina saying, I'm notifying you to expect an attempt will be made to resupply Fort Sumter with provisions and that if not be resisted, um, I will, the, the naval ships that come down will turn around and go back. All will send in its food. Uh, and you know, that's the fateful decision. And that, that um, expedition leaves the New York Harbor on April 8th, I think it was. Yeah, April 8th. And on April 9th, what does the Confederate, I mean, Francis Pickens, of course, said, well, you know, I can't make this decision. And by that time, General Beauregard had already, from the Confederate, from, you know, there was now a Confederate army. And Beauregard, who was from Louisiana, uh, was in charge of the Confederate defenses of, Fort, of Charleston Harbor. And he was an old artillery instructor at West Point, an artillery man. And he had set up this kind of ring of fire all around the South Carolina Harbor, all the guns bearing on Fort Sumter. Um, Pickens and Beauregard sent a telegram to Montgomery, the Confederate capitals in Montgomery at that time, saying, what should we do? And the Confederate cabinet meets. So far, it's been the Lincoln's cabinet meeting. And at first, they had advised Lincoln, you know, back off. Eventually a majority of them but Seward and the Secretary of the Interior um, still wanted to back off but the rest of them had come around to Lincoln's point of view by the end of March. Uh, this solution of um, putting the onus on Jefferson Davis, we're just going to send in food for hungry men and if you allow it to go in um, you know, we, we want the, there'll be no shooting no war, it's just the status quo all we want to do is maintain the status quo it's existed for months. Uh, so now the ball is in the Confederate court in Montgomery. So Davis calls a meeting of his cabinet. What what do they decide? What should they have decided? What did they decide? <coughs> what would you have decided if you were Jefferson Davis' cabinet? All right, it's my What's that? By right, it's my fort. Get out. That's what they did decide. <coughs> Actually, they sent orders to uh, fire on the fort before those ships could get there. So, April 11th, Beauregard, under a flag of truce, um, takes a boat out to Fort Sumter. Yes? Is that because they didn't know for sure what was on those boats? Yeah. Oh, they knew. Lincoln had... Lincoln had said, here's what I'm going to do. Lincoln was a politician. Yes. He said one thing, but did they know? And not for sure what one of them. Well, I suppose they may not have entirely trusted it, but what he said is that, you know, I'm sending down 
uh, a naval force with uh, 200 soldiers, uh, but I'm also sending these um, um, unarmed ships with, uh, with flour and salt pork and bacon and coffee and beans. But even so, that's a threat. They saw it as a threat. Yes. Um, and, but he does say, you know, if you let the bacon and the beans go in, uh, the ships and the soldiers will turn around and go back to New York. Maybe it would have. Yeah, well, they, they didn't know whether to believe him or not. You're absolutely right. Well, what that That's what he, but in fact, he legitimately and sincerely intended to do precisely that. Because if he had, if he had said this openly and publicly and then had violated it, you know, that, he, he would have been entirely in the wrong. So I think that legitimately they could probably expect that he was going to do what he said he did because not to do that would have been contrary, would have been totally counterproductive from his point of view. I'm sorry, Mary, no, you had a point? Oh, I was just wondering what indications, what records are there of that debate that would indicate how much they trusted that what Lincoln said he was going to do was what he was going to do, or did he become the great saint by this time in their perspective? Well, what happened, I mean... What's really frustrating for the historian is the lack of... We, we do have some contemporary records of the debate within the Union cabinet in March on what to do because Lincoln asked each of his cabinet secretaries to uh, make a written recommendation on what ought to be done. Uh, I think on March 16th. <coughs> and so we have that documentation. Um, there's no written record of the Confederate cabinet meeting, written down at the time, of the Confederate cabinet meeting on April 9th. All we know is the telegram that was sent by the Secretary of War, a guy named Walker, to Beauregard, saying, reduce the fort before the ships get there. Now, later, Robert Toombs, who looks to us like he was kind of a fire eater, because during the war he became kind of a fire eater, but it was actually a moderate. He's an old Whig, and he was a colleague of Alexander Stevens in Georgia. Um, and so he was not the fire eater in the 18th. Well, he, he, sometimes his rhetoric sounded like he was a fire eater. But he later claimed that in this cabinet meeting, he was the sole cabinet member out of six, as Secretary of State, who said, don't fire the first shot. If you do, it will unite the North, and they'll come down on you like a cloud of locusts or some, some such rhetoric. Now, whether he really said that on April 9th or whether he later wished he had said that <laughs> reported that he had said that, April, we don't know because that was not... Our documentation for that comes from later, not from the time. It's one of those frustrating things for an historian. Do you really believe what people say they said when they report it 10 or 20 years later. You've got to be very skeptical about that. Anyhow, Toombs' biographers have claimed that he was the, he was the prescient uh, person who saw that this, would be, that this would be a bad thing for the Confederates to do. Uh, because they fire on the flag... They force the American flag to be lowered and surrender. They are the aggressor. They're going to unite the North. Whereas the North, up until that time, was very divided about what to do. I mean, most Republicans 
wanted to hold on to Fort Sumter. Some Democrats did, but a lot of conservatives in, in both parties said, look, in the, and Seward, of course, was their spokesman, in the interest of preserving the peace, let's pull out uh, and see if we can't still work something out. So what yeah. extent did public opinion in the North, uh, what percentage of people in the North wanted uh, to force the South back into the Union? What percentage thought that it didn't matter to them what the South did? Well, there's no way of knowing exactly because we don't have polling from that time. The best thing we can do is gauge it on the basis of newspaper editorials and newspaper positions. And I would say that by April, most Republican newspapers wanted a firm show of sovereignty. They wanted that American flag to continue to fly over Fort Sumter, no matter what it took. But some Republicans, uh, especially uh, you know Seward's allies in New York, and a lot of Democrats, and certainly the border state unionists, and remember that eight slave states were still part of the United States. Now they hadn't voted for Lincoln; they weren't part of his constituency. But he, of course, regarded himself as president of the whole United States, not just of the Republican Party or of the free states. So opinion was all over the place on this, and that's what made it very difficult to come to a decision. But I think Lincoln's genius here was that he he came up with a solution that put the onus on the other side. Uh, and and uh, in some ways I think that's you know that's pretty pretty effective leadership. Yes. We don't have much time left. <laughs> We're all teachers. What would you have us what would you like for us to clarify for our students? What are the things you think, hey, our students need to hear that maybe they haven't heard in the past? Um, well, the thing is, I don't know what they haven't heard in years past. <laughs> so what continue making things up? <laughs> I, I don't know what your students think uh, is the case. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, my own feeling here is that this was a brilliant uh, leadership decision by Lincoln um, because it, it, it puts the onus of a decision for peace or war on the other side. And in a way, I think I used this phrase in, in something I wrote, that it, he flips a coin and and, and, and uh, the, the coin is to Jefferson Davis and heads I win, tails you lose um, because if Davis if Davis uh, says okay we'll let the supplies go in the Confederates lose face they've been asserting for months that the United States government must turn over Fort Sumter to the Confederate States of America because it's in Charleston Harbor you can't have an enemy, or I shouldn't say enemy, they weren't a warrior. You can't have another country maintaining a fort in your principal harbor, or one of your principal harbors. Um, so if Davis said, well, we're going to let you continue to fly the American flag over Fort Sumter, the Confederates would have lost face. Uh, um, on the other hand, if Davis makes the decision, or his cabinet makes the decision they did make, let's attack and seize the fort before these ships even get there, you know, that's that's putting the onus of starting. You fired on the flag. 
Um, and so from Lincoln's point of view, I think it was a brilliant decision. He wins either way. Right. He wins either way because if those supplies go in peacefully, he has he has made a, an important substantive point. We are sovereign over this fort. He's encouraging unionists, and of course the Republicans overestimate the number of closet unionists, shall we call them, in in the seven states that have already gone out. But certainly there were some there. Uh, and that encourages them well. The United States is determined to maintain its sovereignty. And, of course, he's going to encourage unionists in the border states, too. Um, uh, so he wins in that respect. But if, if the Confederates fire on the first shot, fire the first flag, that's going to unite the North in defense of the flag. Yes? If, theoretically, we get rid of Sumter, it doesn't exist. Does war happen anywhere over something else? War happen anyhow over something else? Everybody hear that question? If Sumter doesn't exist and so there's no issue here, uh, can the peace be maintained or will an incident come up somewhere else? <coughs> Excuse me, somewhere else. You think it's going to come up somewhere else? Um, what about the rest of the year? I like your argument. I think it is pretty brilliant, but I'd like to play devil's advocate to it sure. a little bit. Actually, they made a very bad decision, the Confederates, to fire on Sumter because if they had just kept waiting it out, they could have painted it as, well, we're humanitarian. Okay, we'll let food go to these poor soldiers. It's okay. Eventually, you'll negotiate with us and you'll give it up to us anyway, or the North will fire the first shot. And as long as the Confederates keep waiting, the longer they exist, the more just their simple existence. The more legitimate. Yeah, makes them legitimate. So they were a little too hot-headed. So you think it would have been to the Confederate advantage to let them go in? And I think Lincoln gave up the initiative that way, which you don't do in a conflict. You don't give up the initiative. So you think Lincoln back- gave up the initiative? Backfired. Yeah, okay. Now remember, uh, the Confederacy only consists of seven states at this time. and the, the uh, Even if we're thinking of the, of the four states that did eventually secede, their population and economic resources are greater even than the resources of the seven states. So maintaining the status quo has some advantages for, for the Lincoln administration in terms of isolating those seven states that have gone out. Yes? Did you have a question? Uh, but if you play that waiting game, isn't the South in a position where it clearly sees that it's the clock is ticking? We can only do this so long before we start to need to either continue trading with the North or trade with somebody else to get things we don't have? Uh, Well, there's no reason why the South, uh, the Confederate States, and the North couldn't continue trading with each other. The mail was still being delivered in the South up until Fort Sumter. Uh, Federal courts were still open in the South up until Fort Sumter. They weren't doing anything, but, you know, they, they still, the judges still <coughs> existed. So uh, th- this kind of uneasy status quo could probably have gone on for a while if both sides said, okay, you know, uh, so, you know the, the, there are the, there's this independent nation down there, but uh, the United States Postal Service will continue as long as they're willing to and to do it, I mean, there was this a rather strange situation, and probably couldn't have lasted forever. But um, 
And nobody knew what would happen if they allowed the food to go in. You know, what's going to be the, as you said, if it's not, if it's, if it's not Fort Sumter, is it going to be somewhere else? Uh, our northern um, steamboats coming from Cincinnati going to be allowed to go to New Orleans and, and uh, sell their products to New Orleans or export them from New Orleans uh, port. Um, well, they were doing it. Uh, you know, New Orleans said, sure, you, can, you know, we're in favor of free navigation of the Mississippi, but we're still a sovereign nation. Well, you know, we'll let you use it, but it's our permission uh, to do it. So there was this kind of strange, uneasy, uh, and in some ways illogical situation that existed, but that could have lasted for a while. Who knows? Um, and you, you're thinking that it would have been to the Confederates' advantage. Why didn't they think so? Why didn't Jefferson Davis say, all right, we'll let that food go in? I think Lincoln was betting, uh, betting on a sure thing. But the screwiness of the people in right. Charleston and South Carolina. Right. They were just too wrought up, they were going to do something. Uh, and it wouldn't take but a little fire to, yeah. to let them pop. The heart of society. I'm warning you, I have to put an end to this in a minute. So. <laughs> <laughs> they had to have the conflict there. Ultimately, Europe would have been involved with the United <clears throat> States. Ultimately, it would have reached the point where you either let the thing go and they're out of it. Well, we're not omniscient. We can't know what would have happened in uh, May or June or July of 1861 if you know if these provisions had gone in and the status quo had persisted. And I think you, I think you're probably right that there would have been another incident somewhere, sometime that might have sparked the war. Um, but we can't know that. We don't know for sure. All we can know is what did happen. Yeah. It seems to me that both sides kind of got what they wanted. Uh, Lincoln had his hands washed from being the first one shot, fired the shot, so he didn't look like the aggressor. And the uh, Southerners um, got those border states that were on the line and uh, eventually to join with them. And that's another reason why they probably didn't want to hold out too long. Was that Virginia was still in session, their convention was still meeting, and they could make, they could change their minds and make the decision that now we should join the Confederacy. Which they did. There was Three days at, or five days after the firing on Fort Sumter, yeah, they succeeded. And, and if Lincoln would have been allowed to resupply, that would have been a foothold in the heart of Charleston and um, possibly a stopping place for rearmament if they were ever going to take South Carolina mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no easy answer to that question. Uh, as it turned out, um, you know, both sides, both sides, and just as you point out, both sides actually gained something from this. The Confederates gained four you know, large and, and resource-rich states, without which they would have been a pretty marginal nation. And uh, Lincoln gained what was, for a time at any rate, a united North determined to defend the flag and suppress the rebellion. Because now it was a rebellion. It wasn't just disunion, it was now a rebellion. And that, you know, that's the key aspect of Fort Sumter. It transformed, uh, we were talking earlier about secession transforming the question from what to do about slavery to do what to do about disunion. Firing on Fort Sumter transformed the issue, the uncertain question of what to do about disunion into a certain question of what to do about rebellion. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the process. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.